Welcome back to Finding Home with me, Scott Harris. This is an exciting episode. I get to speak to one of my favorite people, Seth Siegel. Seth is the author of the award-winning and critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, which is now in print or production in more than 20 different countries, pardon me, 50 countries. I call him Yossi Siegel, and we talk about the difference between his author name, Seth Siegel, and his colloquial name that everybody knows him as, Yossi. He has spoken hundreds of times on water and other issues around the U.S. and the world. He's spoken to Congress, the U.N., the World Bank, Davos, and at Google, and more than 40 college campuses. But we talk a lot about his incredibly varied life. In the show notes, you'll get a link to an incredible article about what it means to shift gears and change chapters when you're inspired to do it. We talk about ping pong. We talk about an incredible book of quotes and how people, whether they're living or dead, can be mentors. Without further ado, this is my conversation with, again, one of my favorite people, Seth Siegel. I am thrilled to have with me today New York Times bestselling author, entrepreneur, and my friend, Seth Siegel. Seth, how are you? Can I call you I'm Yossi great. for the purposes of this interview? I mean, for the, to the world, you're known as Seth, I guess, on, on, the, on the, the, the cover of, of books. But how, does everyone call you Seth in the world? Or, you know, I call you Yossi. No, so a, how, how actu- that... Actually, I, f- I find it jarring when someone calls me Seth. And it's, uh, I keep, the, I, I used to keep Seth for like business functions and, and formal relationships. And then I started telling people after the second, you know, interaction, I would say, you know, my nickname is Yossi. Why don't you just call me Yossi and, and we'll leave it at that. And now I have this funny thing that I have to do because there are some people who are historically Sethers and I'm writing emails to, and I have to sometimes look up, do they know me as Seth or the name is Yossi? So do I sign my email as Yossi or Seth? So it's been, you know, the email comes from Seth Siegel, but, but at the end of my email, do I sign off as Yossi or Seth? But, but yes, Scott, you are one of, one of the vast majority of people who do call me Yossi. And, uh, and for those who are calling me Seth out there, I feel badly that I never told you that I am almost universally called Yossi. But all my books are Yossi. Uh, are my, all my books are Seth. Yeah. And whenever I do a speaking engagement, I always insist that I be called Seth. Um, and whenever I sign documents, it's Seth. And usually when I do podcasts, it's Seth. So this will be, this is a first, Scott. This is the first podcast where I have been Yosified. So Beautiful. I'm in. I'm so glad. I also want to add that, you know, we're both married into the same family. So we're kind of technically, I've been told that we're called outlaws, you know, not, <laughs> not in-laws, but outlaws in this particular family. I got to, and I think it's, it's more kind of as a, as a segue into, what I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, about seven years ago, you wrote this well-shared article in the New York times that talked about your career and it was called all of the above. And I I wanted to dive into just this idea of how you, how you bounced from, from thing to thing. I mean, for those of you who haven't read the article, we'll post it in the show notes, but in the article, you mentioned the word joy as something you know that you had long ago thought okay if if something doesn't bring me joy that you know i as i'm thinking about the careers i want to choose 
that if it doesn't bring me joy, is that something you articulated just like that in college? Or did you put it another way when you were like a 18, 20 year old kid thinking about what you wanted to do? Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I, I, I thank you for the opportunity to even think about this. But as, as you were asking the question, I had a flashback to being a young teenager. And every night I used to, uh, I'm revealing the, the early nerd part of me. But every night I would go to bed fairly late. My family did not insist that I hit the, hit the hay early. And I would listen to a sort of a public policy show, sort of the arts and policy show, politics and policy, called the Barry Gray Show. And Barry Gray was, an, it was one of the early great radio interviewers. The thrill of my life later when I got to meet him, got to be in the studio. But that's, that's for a much later date. And I used to listen to Barry Gray going at 11.05 every night. I'd listen to him until I'd drowse off to sleep. I had a little transistor radio, and I would keep it on my bed next to me. And he once interviewed an author who said that his relationship with money was that it wanted, he wanted it to buy him freedom. And I haven't, although I've never shared this before, and that he wanted it to buy him freedom. And I didn't feel the same way about money. I grew up in a financially deprived childhood environment, and I did want to make money. I wanted to have whatever money could bring to me. But I understood immediately what he meant about the freedom. And I thought right then and there that I would also not want to live a life where I was simply working to make money, uh, as much money as it might be. And then when I was in college, I made myself a promise of some sort, which was that I would only work in something that I guess that's where the, it's been a few years since I read the article, but but uh, but where I promised myself that I would want to work in something that would give me joy and that I would leave something promptly if it stopped giving me pleasure. Um, and that has led to, strangely enough, a really a polyglot career and a polyglot professional life where I've been an, an, a, an advertising copywriter. I've been a lawyer, which obviously required years of law school and years of practice. I've been an entrepreneur. I've started seven different companies now in each and every one of them in a completely different field. Currently, I'm involved with four different enterprises. One, they're all diverse from the other. One is real estate, one at real estate brokerage, one is a gardening company, one is a speaker's bureau, and, and one is involved with the revolutionary irrigation technology. And, and if you think about this, you know, why would I do this to myself? And the answer is that each of these give me pleasure. And that of the prior seven businesses I've started and either sold or departed from, it's because it stopped giving me pleasure. And pleasure or joy or however you want to call it. And, and, and so as long as I'm learning and, and loving the interactions, I, I tend to keep at it. I'm always looking for the next, but also I like being in the moment as well. How do you choose? I mean, I, I, it's almost a silly question. It's like, how do you choose something that brings you joy? Because either you find it and it brings you joy or it doesn't. It's not, a, not much of a choice, but how are you, when you first said, okay, I'm going to get into either copywriting or law school, whatever, I don't know what came first, get into the law. How did you pick that kind of first step out of, you know, into, you know, off the ledge into, you know, in the air from the with, nest? So with the exception of law school, every other career track I have had has been without any plan whatsoever. I, I liken myself to a, a cork from a bottle that somehow or other is uh, adrift on the ocean surface <laughs> and it's buffeted by wave after wave. It moves this way and that way with no, no direction of its own. And I sort of think of myself that way too. 
And and so yes, law school was a plan, but it wasn't my plan. It was actually my father's plan. So that was the yeah. first was the first piece. No, the thing was copy, advertising copywriting was the first career I had. And my father, my father and mother were worried. What happens if I wake up one day and I stop being creative? That, that was a that was a, a serious father mother son conversation one day. And I thought, what is that, a wonderful said, is that, what a wonderful I, problem fear for parents to have. I, I said, oh, is he going to make money? But is he going to stop being creative? Okay. I said, is that possible? I said, aren't creative people creative? Isn't that how it works? So, so, but they got me a little scared and, and, um, and my father had himself had always wanted to be a lawyer. And I think this was a vicarious pleasure for him. And I went to law school and I was totally miserable at it. I didn't enjoy a single day of it. And I didn't enjoy a single day of, I think it was six years of practice. I was in, it was just, <laughs> it was just like the lost years of my life. But, uh, but I, I, I like to think maybe I've made use of some of it in, in my business career. Um, and nonetheless, but other than the, the law, legal stuff, I mean, the, the copywriting uh, job, I was a, a humor columnist for the Cornell Daily Sun, my campus daily. And uh, one day I get a phone call from the owner of a local ad agency saying, I've been reading your stuff. I think you're a terrific writer. Would you would you consider becoming a copywriter? And I, I had no idea what the phrase meant. He I came down. To, I was working as a I worked my way through college. I was working as a breakfast cook, getting up at five in the morning and, uh, you know, making two dollars and ten cents an hour. And he came down, gave me a copy test. I, I did the test. And he said, you're hired. I'm going to pay you $35 an hour. Is that okay? I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, you, and you come in and you pick your hours. You don't have to wake up early. You know, it's like, wow. So that was, that was my copyright. But each and every one of my careers was sort of like an accidental step into yet another thing that sounded interesting. I, as you know, Scott, I'm a quotations collector and I have a book of quotations that I've collected with a commentary on them called other people's words. Yeah. I, um, to, I was I definitely, I was going to talk to you about it. Yeah, go ahead. But I just wanted to quote a quote from there that I love, which is by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president who, who said, uh, you know, about, about how you get things done. He says, do something. If, if it's working, do more of it. If it's not working, do less of it. And I think that that's sort of been my approach to a lot of careers. Like I said, I have seven prior careers for the four current ones, but but probably I've had 30 or 40, you know, some of them lasted only maybe a couple of days or a week. And then I started saying, Jesus, this is a lot more complex than I imagined it was going to be, or I don't really have the skills for this or, or God, this is more boring than I imagined it was going to be. And, uh, you know, so I bailed quickly, but in my mind, I mean, I've been a lobster fisherman and a, you know, a merchant mariner and a, and a political candidate. And I've been, in my mind, I've been a thousand different jobs. So, and then the ones that stuck were the ones that seemed to feel good and continue to work for me. Right. It's like, uh, I mean, you say you feel like you're a cork on the ocean, but it's more, it's almost like you're uh, like a Forrest Gump. I mean, no, no intellectual, <laughs> yes. not the intellectual yes. side of it, but like kind of the randomness of, okay, you got here and this worked and okay, I'm, I'm playing ping pong. Yeah. And, well, actually, yeah. yeah. That's actually, that's actually even better. You know, by the way, that, you're exactly right. I mean, I, as you know, Scott, I'm very involved in, uh, since you're calling me Yossi, I call you Scotty, but Scotty, yeah, since, since you know, you know, since, uh, um, as, as you know me, I mean, I'm very involved in a lot of not-for-profit activities too. I really, you know, very passionately want to do that, but not out of a sense of obligation or that, you know, the most obnoxious phrase, noblesse oblige or anything like that is I, I do it because I really want to do it. And I've touched dozens and dozens of charitable organizations. And sometimes out of duty, I end up on a board or end up doing something because it's just good for the world. It's like eating your spinach kind of thing, although I like spinach, but, um, but metaphorically eating your spinach. But but mostly what I'll do is I'll get involved with an organization. I find I love it and I'll keep doing it. Or or I'm not a terribly great athlete, but some years ago I, I started playing ping pong. I fell completely in love with it and 
And, you know, but for COVID, I have the conceit of thinking I would have, you know, been in the Maccabea games because I was told I was on my way there. So, so who knows, you know, but, 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 but that's that approach of being Forrest Gump and Forrest Gump was a ping pong player, actually. So yeah. that Forrest Gump image, I think, is even better than the cork. So I'll, I'll take it. Thank you. Please borrow, take it and, and use it freely. Yeah, I, for, I actually, we do have all, all, podca- all podcasts in the future, I'll be using Forrest Gump. No more corks. <laughs> um, you know, I do want to we have something in common, which I don't even know if I've, I've told you this before. But when I was in college, I had I also kind of had no money to spend on gifts, you know, end of the year. It's it's Christmas and, and holiday season, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. And I, I was like, I got to give my family something. And so over the course of the year, I'd be reading books and writing down quotes or, you know, whatever. And then my friend had this computer program where we, we created a way to template the quotes. And I would go to the copy place and I would make wow. these little tear off quote calendars for everyone. And some people, you know, at the, it started to get like a bigger and bigger gift list. Like I really want this and somebody else would hear about it. Hey, Scott, can you give me this? And so by the end, you know, I was giving out maybe 50 or 75 of these, these cut and, and, and gummed together one a day quote calendars. Then I found out later that some people didn't tear them off. They would like kind of look each day, but then they wanted to hold on to it because I had to come up with 365 new quotes a year, but it was always, you know, the reason I bring it up. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, oh, the way, by you, the way, just just, just interrupt yeah. you. It's sort of like your pom poms now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't know if all your listeners know about that, but they should. You know, Scott Scott has a a wisdom of the day program now, and you know, every morning I wake up, I play Wordle, and I look at my pom pom Scott Harris pom pom of the day. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, but I cut you off, Scotty. Go ahead. No, no, it's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to ask you, you know, as you're kind of getting out there. And you're, you're collecting your own quotes. You're looking for your own wisdom from kind of the ages, so to speak. But were there more local people that you're like, huh, I really don't. I, I just spent three years of law school with kind of drudgery. I'm in the work, working world. Don't love. I mean, a lot of people decide to move on from the legal profession and apply what they learn, learn in business. But did you have mentors that were also um, guiding you like, hey, I really don't like this or, you know, bouncing things off when it was time to move or you felt like that joy wasn't present anymore? You know, you've touched on probably one of the saddest elements of my life, which is that one of the most regretful elements of my life, I've never had a mentor. I've so badly wished that, and I, by the way, and in return, I've mentored dozens and dozens of people. Um, I, um, and, uh, and currently doing so with a handful of talented young people, but it's something that I don't understand. I, I think of it as the people who, whenever I read a story about so-and-so with so-and-so's mentor, help them think things through, or a talented, wiser, older person. The only quote-unquote mentor I had was my academic advisor at, at undergraduate. I told that person I was thinking of going for a PhD instead of going to law school. My parents pushed me to law school, saying so I'm going for a PhD, and that I wanted to have a, a life of writing books and teaching and such. And and I think he was projecting onto his own life. He said, "Oh, it's a terrible life. Don't do that." <laughs> so <laughs> okay. So so and I stayed in touch with him. I was very friendly with him for decades afterwards. Um, but. Um, but he was quote unquote a mentor, I suppose, of sorts. But um, but no, I've never I've never had a mentor uh, who has shared life wisdom with me or such. And so, and maybe that's why I've reached into you know antiquity as well as modernity by finding these I think very wise bits of of information and and jotting them down and categorizing them and living with them. And now, you know, it's decades and decades of collecting. I have thousands and thousands of quotations. And then 
finally I had the, the I had a gift to me, which was that my editor at uh, St. Martin's Press, knowing of this collection, said, you know, during COVID, do you think maybe you could pull together a, um, you know, she didn't think it was going to end up being so many quotes, but uh, but she's going to pull together a book of your favorite quotes and ca- and bring them into categories so that it could be sort of an inspirational book and and a self help book of a sort, um, and and so I had a chance to rethink the whole collection. It was it was really I mean, I mean obviously it's a different experience editing a book than writing a book, uh, but um, but I, I I had a great time and a great experience reliving that and understanding the DNA of how so many of those quotations some of which I collected when I was 16 and 17 and 15 years old, as well as my 20s and 30s and after. But I realized how how much of that affected how I approach business, how I affect interpersonal relations, how I affect my relationship with my fantastic wife, how I how, how it affected my parenting. And, and every aspect of my life, I realized, has been impacted in one way or another by these very needy but very well-worded quotations that aren't like Hallmark card, you know, uh, type mugs or dopey bumper sticker kind of cute phrases with maybe an exception or two, but they are of the 12 or 1300 quotations that ended up in the book. I realized so many of them were so deep and soulful that you could, you could write an essay of meditation on any one of them and, uh, and, and realize how it touches, touches your life and affects the way you live your life. Yeah. I, the, the way I, I, I'd love for you to try this on, for size. Cause it's, to me, it's this idea, maybe the mentor, I'll, I'll back up and just say, when I think about music, sometimes when you're listening at a certain level of yourself from a certain level that within you, it's almost like you're having a conversation that time doesn't matter. Right. So like it can be Mozart, it can be John Coltrane, people who are long dead and you're connecting to them and time it doesn't exist. You're just having this musical conversation and being inspired by them, whether they're in the room or not. I mean, they're in the room. Like that's the, the, the idea. Be They're actually with you. And maybe, you know, in, in your case where you're talking about quotes of people, they're connecting to you on a certain level. And it's not that they're in Matt. They are mentors. They just happen not to be physically in your life but they're in your life. Oh, no, no. Know? I totally, yeah. I totally agree yeah. with that. No, yeah. I, I, when you would ask me about mentor, mentors yeah. and mentorship, I was really yeah. thinking more about the corporeal right. person who right. you're sitting across from, who's uh, eating a sandwich, you know, right. but, um, but the sort of the, the, but, but you're absolutely right. And I think I, I think that that's exactly the point is that I fell in love with because I'd never figured out a way to have a mentor. No mentor ever found me. Yeah. I, I found, though, that having these quotations were so powerful and, and uh, such a source of opportunity to rethink. And by the way, I hasten to add, it's not something that once it's in the collection, it's always in the collection. I found myself for years and years with regularity going through the the collection. Obviously, in the early years, it was much like smaller. Pruning, but Pruning it or whatever. Pruning because I came to conclude something wasn't true anymore or that it was trite or that or that it wasn't the person I wanted to be. So, so it was also the case where it was, it was a conversation of a sort where it was these great thinkers and some of whom were not, you know, no one ever heard of, but these great thinkers, things I read from different articles or books or such that they would say things, they would speak to me. And then at a later time, I would realize 
it's nonsense or it's bad or it's it's counterproductive and i wanted it out of my life and i would get rid of it as well so so there there's that there's that aspect too like once a year once every six months how often were you are are you going back and and having those well, those kinds well, of uh well it depended i mean at different stages at different stages of my life it was really really frequent and then there was a long period of of like of, you know technology really helped me out what happened was i used to type up each and every one of the quotes that I loved on an index card and I would put it into a category of some such. And then when word processing became invented, um, I had them all typed in a single thing. So it was like sort of like a book. And then as the laptop got into our lives, I took all those and I started sorting them category by category by category. And I put them into master categories and, 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 and so doing it gave me the opportunity saying, Hmm, I want to think about, you know, parenting or I want to think about business or I want to think about my relationship with sports and I could just dig in and with a keyword I could instantly find what I wanted to read so I didn't have to read the whole collection to find the quote that I was looking for even as serendipitously wonderful as it was to go back and revisit a quotation and there's a quotation I have it's a famous quote by Heraclitus which is a Greek uh, writer and philosopher that you can't step into the same river twice well obviously geographically of course you can but he meant that from a point of view, the river is constantly flowing. So the river has changed, but just as important, you have changed. So you cannot step into the same river twice because the river and you are both at a different place. Well, the same thing happened, I suspect, with, with every time I would, or nearly every time I'd jump into the quotations collection, is the collection may have been static in the way that the river isn't, but I changed. And so my reaction to many of these quotations were richer, deeper, more nuanced, or I found them superficial and re ready to discard them. And, and so it was a really a beautiful thing that, that the quotation grew, grew up with me and, and helped me sort of like a Shel Silverstein story about the giving tree. You know, it helped me at different stages of my life in many different ways. As I changed, as I stepped into the, so to speak, the metaphorical river of these quotations. Are you... When you're like trying to, you know, you're realizing, okay, the law is not working for me and I'm ready for, you know, something new. What is, what does that feel like? And how long does it take for you to decide, you know, my, my business coach calls it like the speed of implementation. How, how long does it take for you to go from it's time to go to actually I'm going in a situation like that? Yeah, you, 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 you invested know. three years into law school. You worked for six years in, in the law, in the law. You know, when do you, Pull the trigger. I'm out of here. Yeah, law was law was a hard one because I, I ended law school seriously in debt, so I was uh, I was in need of being able to pay that back, and I didn't have another skill particularly that I was going to go work in that field. Um, so I stayed in the law far longer than I should have. In fact, I should have dropped out of law school the second week of law school. <laughs> it was just stupid of me. Um, again, if I had had a mentor, I think I would have been different. If, if I had a mentor who would explain to me how business works, you know, I, my father was an accountant. My mother was a homemaker, later became a bookkeeper. But, you know, my father was a small time accountant for like liquor stores and dry cleaners and, you know, worthy, important businesses. But, but he didn't have a sense of how business gets formed, how business works. So I never had I never had anybody to whisper in my ear of, you know, you have a very entrepreneurial way about you and and you understand how to make money and you should you should should hone that skill. And I don't mean by going to business school, but just by jumping into the business world and doing stuff. 
Um, but anyway, so law, law was a long goodbye. Um, I had, sometimes I feel like I have an obligation because I've started a business with somebody. I like, I like doing business with partners mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to leave them high and dry. So I, I look for the right exit. Um, but it, it, you know, but it's, it's, I don't turn on a dime. I also want to make sure once I've started a business, unless it's something like that, as I said, like the lobster fisherman idea of like, which is like a, a one, a one hour fantasy where I didn't actually do anything. I never got on the boat, never put on the boots. Uh, you know, uh, it's, um, you know, it, it, it takes a little bit of a while because I want to make sure that I'm not being impulsive. I want to make sure that, I, that, that, that I, since I've invested some time and energy and sometimes money and getting started that I'm not leaving too quickly. So I, I don't, I don't, jump immediately but but i also don't tether myself to something my attitude is just because i've made a mistake or maybe it wasn't a mistake then but just because i've come to think of it as something that i'd rather not be doing it doesn't mean i i owe it to myself to continue to do it and i think there's another quotation from george bernard shaw that he he wrote most men i guess there'd be most people live lives of quiet desperation i don't want to ever have that said about me by myself and and i'm proud to say scott that I, of course, like everybody, I've had individual days when I've been bored at work. And I've even had a bunch of times when I've had two consecutive days when I've been bored at work. I have never once, never once in decades of being a working person had three consecutive days where I've been bored. And the reason for that is that I just simply say to myself, it's in my hands. It's, it's not, it's not some objective fault of somebody else, an employer or a client to, to make me see things in an excited way. It's, it's, I have to, kick myself in the butt, so to speak, and, and get myself reoriented so that I could see something exciting or new or challenging and force myself. And, but after a while, if I find myself hard, getting harder and harder to find those new, exciting, challenging things, or if it's a partner I've come to dislike, then it becomes time to move on. And I mean, there are different ways to leave a business, right? I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily have to close the doors. You can always just say, look, I'm I'm exiting and, and, you know, somebody else is going to run these things for me, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, um, as I said before, I've come to very much like making money and, um, and the best way to do it is either sell your interest or to exit on a way where you continue to get a cash flow for many, many, many years to come. Um, and I've, I've, I have both of those in my current life and I've done both of those. And, and uh, the best thing of course, obviously is to figure out a way to, that your sunk costs continue to make you money for long after you've gone. But uh, if it's the proper price, a sale is a wonderful thing as well. And, you know, just in terms of getting up to speed, you know, just to reference back to the, the article that you wrote in in the piece you wrote in the times about, you know, all of the above and, and the career path, did, did nothing ever scare you about the sort of ramp up period of new businesses? Um, were you daunted by that? Or you said, look, this is just, this looks fun. I'm going to give it a shot and see what happens. Take it day by day. I mean, what was, what was the attitude when you were like, I'm going to start this new thing. Are you kidding? Oh my God. Terror, terror, <laughs> terror. But yeah. you know what I came to, the more you do it though, you come to realize something, which is business. It doesn't matter what the, I mean, I could list the business I've been in. I've been in really separate fields of endeavor. I've never been in manufacturing, so that that's something. I've been, every, well, I've been in many different service businesses, and I think manufacturing is much, much, much harder. Or if I've been in manufacturing, or been on the service side of it, and there's been a manufacturing side handled by somebody else. Um, but um, what I've come to realize is that 
almost all businesses are at their core the same. And therefore, your skill sets are incredibly transferable. You know, so it's not like I've, I moved from, you know, working as a plumber for ABC plumbing, and then I moved over to XYZ plumbing because it would be nicer people. That's the more traditional way of changing, you know, jobs or careers type of thing. But that was never what appealed to me. My, my, what appealed to me was the idea of, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. And that this was the industry. And that includes sometimes when I've been given astoundingly generous opportunities to go back into something um, involving crazily large amounts of money I've been offered. And I just won't do it ideologically. But, but in terms of your question of fearfulness, it's terrifying at first because every industry, every profession has its own vocabulary. And all of us like to feel like we are em like we are empowered individuals. And when we are in a situation where imagine you're suddenly in Poland or, or Slovenia, you don't speak the language. You, right. you, I mean, all of us have been on a, some, some foreign location where, you know, where we hoping everyone speaks English, but they don't, you know, and 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 suddenly you're you're here. You are this highly empowered person, you know, in charge of your life and a, maybe a boss or a senior executive or or a dynamic professor or, or a powerful parent or something. And suddenly you're in another place and you're completely powerless. You don't understand the local customs. You don't understand the law. You don't understand how it's spoken. You don't understand what a wink means. You don't understand, you know, what a finger gesture means. <laughs> That's what it is to change careers. And until you learn the local dialect, it's very daunting, Scott. But what I've come, especially having done this so many times, I've come to understand two separate things. First is you can learn the vocabulary. Second of all is you don't have to learn all the vocabulary. You have to learn enough vocabulary that, you know, because you don't have to be the great expert in that subject matter. You have to be the great expert in what your part of that subject matter is. And then you hire people who are the great expert in that subject matter. And then you make beautiful music together. What, what's the conversation look like? I guess after the first time, okay, the second time you come home and you're like, yep, I think it's time for me to switch over to something new. <laughs> and I think this new thing is X, you know, you're talking to, you're at home, you're talking to your spouse and you're like, what's the, what is, is there like a, okay, here we go again. I mean, how does that, uh, how does that play back and forth? Well, the first time I did it, I was a newly married and <clears throat> I was a lawyer and I really did not love the practice of law, as I said earlier. Um, and that's when I had this first big business idea and I brought it home to uh, my, we were just married a short while and I shared with her the idea. I told her why I liked the idea. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't come from anything resembling any money at all. So I just, like I had, expectations of living a big life, you know, big, expensive life. You know, my, my wife and I were dating. We were thinking if ever we could have a household income, I think it was a sixty-five dollars or $70,000 a year, we would have it made. I mean, that was, that was sort of our backgrounds. And Rachel came from also kind of a, not a, a working class background. Her father was a, a sales a salesman in the garment center. I mentioned my father was a small time accountant. Um, um, you know, so we didn't have a, it wasn't a financial thing like, oh, my God, you know, how, how are we going to eat or how are we going to keep the jet? You know, how are we keep the right. driver? You know, it wasn't anything like that. And, and uh, Rachel's response was, uh, my wife's response was, you know, you, you deserve the chance to make yourself happy. Give it a try. You're a lawyer. You went to a great law school and 
you're, you're, you're quick on your feet. And if you don't like it, you can always fall back to supporting the family of being a lawyer. And, um, and I went out and I did, did this first business and it was, it was harder than I imagined it could be for a lot of reasons. And, and then it kind of, kind of like seemed to work sort of. And, and then I did that for quite a while. And then when, when the next things came up, it was sort of like, sure, why not? You know, you're pretty good at this stuff. What, 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 you know, give it a shot. And then her only concern was, occasionally was, are you overextending yourself? And the answer frequently is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, that's, I'm yeah. saying yes to too much. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I probably am overextending myself. But again, you know, the other thing is, as you get, as you grow older and more experienced, you begin to have very great judgment and become, you become very efficient in your decision making. You can smell what's a good idea or a bad idea very, very quickly. You know questions to ask much more quickly than you would imagine you could have done some years earlier. Um, you become less embarrassed about saying to somebody, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Would you explain that to me? Um, and, and so forth. So that's, that's the, that's the kind of the, the approach to, to, uh, to uh, have to, to business. And, and so, uh, and so I'm much less daunted now than I was uh, say much earlier. And, and, and Rachel is much less daunted as well because now she just sees it as part of my personality. It's like, yeah, okay, it's, it's two years since he started the last business. What's what's took him so long? You know, kind of thing. And you know, I, I, and, I, I and he was got a hasty had one other yeah, thing which, sure. which I did I don't re, didn't realize puts me at odds. I, I was recently asked if I'd sit on a panel from the labor school at Cornell University, and it was about retirement. And there was a the moderator who had just written this terrific book about retirement. And uh, I, I later found it was terrific. I mean, I, I, bought, I bought it after we did the panel. And, and there were five of us on the panel. And I was the only person who had uh, neither retired nor planned to retire. And what I learned is, is that the vast majority of people look forward to retirement and are planning on retirement. And the moderator said that only 8% of Americans have a desire never to retire. And I would put myself in that 8% a group of thinking that I hope that I am able enough mentally and physically to continue doing some type of challenging, exciting, interesting endeavor, whether for pay or not for profit, uh, for the rest of my life. The idea of you know sitting on a beach or playing golf every day, or whatever if others want to do it, that's great for them. I no 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 problem with others doing it, but it's just not what it sounds like a, a happy life for me. I mean, I like the idea of productivity. I like the idea of doing stuff. It's like the definition of work. I mean, somebody has to decide, you know, what is it, what is it that brings me, if it's something that's bringing you joy and it happens to be a business that makes money, then great. Right. I mean, it's not, it's not a, if, if what you're doing doesn't bring you, you know, it's only, what, what do they say? It's like, if you enjoy it, it's not work. You know, if you're just happy that they yeah, happen to make I mean, money. That's a, that's a, one of my hobbies is tracking down the origins of a quotation and there's a quotation attributed to George Burns, the comic, but actually he didn't say it. And that is, if, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And, and I, I, that's sort of, I think the, the approach that I've followed, which is as long as I'm getting up in the morning, not out of a sense of working out of a sense of obligation, but out of really a sense of joy to use that word again, um, then that's a, that's a pretty good start to that day. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually really good at butchering quotes, so feel free to correct me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Remind me when I see you next to slap you. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, so rarely do I get the quote right. There, and... there, are two th- there are two things that are obligatory. One is that you get the idea really sharp. And the second one is that you give credit. Because one of the things that, that we quotation hunters have learned is that lots of people steal other people's quotations and reuse them. And then what happens is the more famous person who has reused the quotation right. uh, gets all the credit for it. Like, like there's no such thing as a free lunch. Everyone thinks Jerry Brown said it, but he didn't. Or, or a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Everyone thinks Rahm Emanuel said it, but they, I mean, they both said it, but they didn't say it first. It was, they took it from somebody else. And, so. and they didn't get in trouble like uh, our current president, who I think, you know, back in the 80s, like plagiarized, oh, you yeah. know, one, one or two <laughs> lines from something and then was like run out of the presidential race, right, at that time. Is that is that am I remembering yeah, well, that right? Paul, yeah, you like are, yeah, yeah. Joe Joe Biden was running. It was in the eighties, and uh, and he he played tries a quote from a labor leader named Neil uh, a labor a labor party fellow named Neil Kinnock, and uh, and he was chased out of out of the race. But politics is a tough business, and and your rivals will jump on any opportunity they can to savage you. I'd love I'd love some time for a politician to say about a rival. You know what? We all make honest mistakes, <laughs> or or that was bad staff work. Give them a free pass. You know that that that'd be refreshing if you hear that once in a while. Yeah, take that take the high road. Um, I I've been yeah. I read or you know I listened to an interview with Arthur Brooks recently, who you know kind of divided um, the work your sort of your working your working life into two phases, kind of like this hard work where your your brain works a certain way, and you really are able to kind of have this really quick thinking and then sort of the shift sometime in like early forties, when you things start to crystallize, you can see things in a little bit more of a, of a conceptual way. And then as time goes on, it's, it becomes about contributing back to, uh, to people that work for you, to your community and so on, you know, as you've, as you, you've built your businesses and as time has gone on, how do you think about contribution and what you, you know, what your you're kind of there in these businesses to do both internally and externally. Well, first of all, and this is a self-serving comment. I, I acknowledge it as such, but uh, first of all, um, I, I have been passionate about being an ethical businessman at all times of my career. Um, and um, I, I, I consider it a, a mark of honor that if a counterparty is misunderstanding something and I can take advantage of him or her, that I will point out to that person that they are misunderstanding the point and that, that we can equalize the field on that regard. Um, and so um, w- one way that I've always felt I'm quote unquote giving back is the fact that I, I live, I don't silo my life as to the not-for-profit side of my life and the for-profit side of my life. I don't think of it in those terms. Um, I, I, I think of it as all, uh, all synthesized together that we need to always behave in a certain way. Now, obviously our not-for-profit work, uh, and you know that I've been involved in quite a number of organizations and, and even before we had succeeded in business, my wife and I were very passionate about giving away money every year to charities. And that's only had the opportunity to grow because of, of our success. But um, my sense of it has always been that we cheat ourselves of, of the greatest opportunities in life, if we choose to say, oh, when I have time or when I have adequate resources, that's when I'll get involved in not-for-profit activities. Um, and that 
I, the reason I say that is I think that not-for-profit activities are really very enriching, particularly when you're a young person, because a not-for-profit organization will kind of take whoever walks through the door to some extent. And and there are over, uh, I've been told there are 1.2 million uh, registered not-for-profits in the United States. So you can always find somebody that's a fit with your needs and your skills. And, and at a much younger age than you could do in the business world, you can get all kinds of responsibility and opportunities to make a difference uh, when you're when you're still a teenager or even your early twenties. And I, 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 so therefore, I've been a I've been a not for profit volunteer continuously for, you know, for I guess it would be way more than fifty years now, and and very joyous about that. So I just want to make that point. If anybody is out there saying, "Oh, I can't wait till I retire so I can become a volunteer," or right, 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 "I can't right. wait till I you know win the lottery or whatever." Um, so, so that's the first one. The, 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 the second point about this is that just as in the same exact way as I seek out for-profit businesses to enter into, I have the exact same attitude about the not-for-profit world. So I think about what is it that I really care about? And and doesn't mean I'll care about it forever, but what is it I care about? Where is it that I can partner with another organiz- with an organization that I can help them, I can help it live its destiny, its mission, but I can also amplify my passion about something, whatever the it is. It could be the opera, which is not my passion, or it could be, you know, animal welfare, which is not my passion, but it could be one of, you know, a dozen different things, hundreds, dozens, thousands of things. And I can't strongly urge uh, enough people to say to people that it's really worth what your while, if you, if you possibly can, to to take the time to master um, or to understand what it is that you are excited by or what you are troubled by, excited by in terms of like the arts or sports and you want to help others get involved with it or or to get involved with it because you're troubled by something in society and you want to give back in that way. And the other part of it is, is that, and I mentioned this earlier, because I've never had a mentor, but I've always wished I had, um, I have really gone out of my way to be a mentor for truly dozens and dozens of young people. Uh, when I say young, I mean like 14 year olds. I mean, the people usually in their early twenties to mid thirties. And it's something that I take as a source of great joy to either meet with them regularly or to episodically have a conversation with them, to be on call for them when they're having a, a, a life issue or a crisis, to be up to date on what they're thinking about or worrying about. And, and nudge them in a right direction or maybe make an introduction or two that would help them in their career. Um, it's something that, um, that I just, I, I never tire of doing. And by the way, I don't do it for the word thank you because painfully, <laughs> the human nature being what it is, painfully, some of them have been very grateful and stayed in touch for a long time. But there's, there's more than a handful, more, more than half, uh, you know, after they've gone on to some level of success of their own, you know, I, I'm in touch with them here and there, but there's no sense of, you know, that I was there for them at a young age necessarily, but that's fine. Cause I did it. As, I did as much for myself as I did it for them. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess the, 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 the follow-up to that is just, you know, when you're thinking about um, giving back, you know, have you, do the business, have you designed the businesses that you've created in some way to, to kind of be aligned with that or, is it, are you strictly, um, you know, it, it, to go get back to your point about just kind of doing business? I mean, they call it like a conscious capitalism, right? That's the the latest yeah. 
way of thinking about it. But have you had you designed your businesses with that in mind, or you know, in terms of how um, how you're giving back, is has it been more in the phil- philanthropy side of things? Well, when I'll tell you two parts. Of that first of all is I would I've always made it mandatory that I have some breathing room in what I do that I have time, obviously for my family and obviously for, not obviously, but, but also for not-for-profit activities. And, and what I like to tell people when they say, well, I just have no time for this. Right. I always say, well, let's imagine two scenarios. Let's imagine you have this very tough boss or a very tough client, you own your own business, tough client, and they demand that one extra hour a week or that one extra hour a day even of time, or God forbid you have a sick parent or even more, God forbid you have a sick child, you will find that time. You will figure it out. And, and therefore, I say to people, you know, it doesn't mean you have to do this every day of your life. But, but there are very few, and there are some people who just can't do it. They're, they're just personally disabled or they have a horrible crisis at home and they just can't do it. But for most of us, I would say, we can find the time if we want to. It may be an hour less of television or it may be an hour less of recreation a week or it may be something like that. But, or we can just make believe we have that very tough boss or that very tough client. And we can find the time to do that little bit of extra helping for others. And I, I argue that it's deeply, it's not just enriching for the 25-year-old who gets big responsibility. It's enriching for us at all stages of our lives. I, I, yesterday, I was at a not-for-profit board meeting. And tonight, I'm going to be going out to another not-for-profit activity. And I'm, I couldn't be happier about both of them. And, and am I, is it tough for me to do it? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have an inbox that's overflowing and, and I have other responsibilities and, and still I'll figure out a way to get it done. Maybe a little less sleep or I'll get, figure out a way to get it done. But I think that this idea of, it's not just giving back. I, 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 giving back almost implies that it's, a, it's, it's like a decal that you stick onto yourself. I mean, I, I make the argument differently is right. that it should be as in, intrinsic to who you are as, as personal hygiene and family obligations and things you should be doing at work and your own health and fitness. I, I make the argument that, that, and I know people who, who think, I mean, I once, had a, I once had a business partner destroy the business relationship. He, he said to me that giving money to charity and volunteering is a sucker's game, he once said to me. And that was, the end, that was sort of the quickly thereafter. It was like the end of the relationship. And, and, and I, I can't even understand people who, who have that attitude, even though I know there are people like that. So, so I, I just think it's, it's on, on each of us to understand the great value of, of in the same way that, you know, that you, you care for yourself, you care for those around you, you work, you do work. You should also be thinking about how you can help transform things around you that you either care passionately about or that you, or that you think are in need of repair. Well, yeah, there's, there's, I will quote Tony Robbins, uh, and hopefully he was the one who originated this, but there was, there was something he said, I read that, you know, listened to it years ago. And he said, when you give, um, of yourself to someone else, what you're signaling is that you have more than enough. Right. And so there's just something wonderful in, in that feeling like, wait a minute, I have something to give. And, you know, it's, it, you're, you're just telling yourself, you know, it, you, you should, it gives you a moment of having gratitude for what you have and the ability to give, but I, I think of it similarly, similarly how you, you do, where it's almost like, uh, like a breathing in and out. It's like, you have to take a full enough breath and take in all the things that you're doing. And then to be able to give back, it's like you to deplete, you have to, in order to take a deep enough breath, you have to 
let it out. And it's this back and forth and back and forth of kind of energy transfer, so to speak, that gives you, you know, kind of enables you to be your fullest self. And so some of that giving out in, and, you know, in giving out to someone else, you're also getting something back. It's this, it's this constant, constant transfer back and forth. Um, yeah. I, by the way, I, I, I like that image very, very much. Uh, and, and I don't love the Tony Robbins image very much. And I, <laughs> I want to tell you something, is it, if, we, if we're going to, I don't know if this is a, a pertinent to you or your audience, but one of the things I, I actually love to do in the not-for-profit world is to solicit funds. Um, and that is, and I'd like to explain to you why, because I believe that I'm actually giving people an opportunity. Now, in that regard, it's the Tony Robbins people, maybe people with more than they need. I believe that everybody wants wants to live a life of value and meaning. I just think that that's a part of the human condition, and that and that they don't always know how to do it. They don't have the vocabulary to do it. They don't have the means to do it. They don't have the the vehicle for doing it. And when I solicit somebody for an organization or a cause that I feel is worthy or that I feel is a fit for them, it may not even be something that I'm involved with. It just I'll say to them, "You should be giving money to X. So let me connect you to so and so." Um, and I've raised, by the way, a, a gigantic sums of money. I, mean, I, I, I sort of once a few years ago, I did a, a sort of a fit back of the envelope calculation and it was $150 million I had raised for different causes. But I cheated a little bit because I got one gift of $75 million, which really, <laughs> you know, ju- juice the, the totals. Uh, um, we'll let it but, slide. Um, okay. We'll let it slide. But, 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 but what, what I would say is, is that, that by, by virtue of soliciting people, you are doing them a favor. In the same way that if I came to you and I said to you, Scott, I have this wonderful investment. I'm not getting a finder's fee or a commission. And I, I'm putting my own money into this thing. And if you want it in, I can get you in on the same terms I'm in on it. You you could invest or not invest, but you're not going to say screw you. You're going to say, thank you. Thank it you. may be for me. It may not be for me, but thank you. And, right. it, and I think it's the exact same thing with fundraising. I, I, I solicit people and I'll, and I think that in many cases, I'm doing them the gigantic, they're not doing me a favor. I'm doing them a favor. I'm bringing them an opportunity to self-actualize at a higher level, to live a life of higher value and higher meaning. And they have every right to say, no, thank you. And I have feel no anger or disappointment if they say no, it's fine. But they, but they, at the same time, I think that they have the opportunity then to change their own lives and how exciting that is for them. So, so, so that's, so that's sort of the, the, the funders, I would like to say one other, one other small anecdote, which is, you know, as I mentioned just a second ago, the $75 million gift, and that's an amazing act of generosity, but that's not the most extraordinary gift they ever solicited. The most extraordinary gift they ever solicited was a woman I went to to ask her for $100. And I told her about the organization. She then followed up with many, many questions about the organization and what the work it did. And I had a feeling she was going to love the organization. She was not a person of a lot of means. And since we're talking about real estate, she lived in a, in a New York City subsidized housing uh, development. And, um, and there, so I, I tried to right size the ask. It was like $100 was like the right size. She, she, was, she would, could give $100 and it would be a meaningful gift for her. And that was, when was plenty. This? When was this? This was a few years ago. This was probably about eight or nine years ago. Okay. And, and I asked her for $100. And... Um, she, as I said, she followed up with a lot of questions. And then the next day she called me up and she said, you know, this is what I've decided. She says, I was planning on going on a summer vacation this summer with my husband. They had no kids. And she said, we've decided that we're not going to go on the vacation. 
and that we will have more joy and more meaning from giving the entire amount that we were going to spend on the vacation and giving it to this organization. And she gave $3,000. And I begged her, I begged her to please not do that. I said to her, you have the right to have a vacation. You should take your vacation. And she said, no, no, no. She says, you have convinced me so well that this is exactly what I should be doing with my time and my money. She became a volunteer at the organization and her gift wasn't $3,000 a year thereafter. It was smaller, but, but, but it was, it, to my mind, that's the most beautiful um, response to any solicitation. I've done thousands of solicitations. It was the most powerful and beautiful response I have ever heard to, to a response to, uh, to one of my asks. Well, how do you top that? That's a beautiful. That's well, a, I mean, but that's the response. To, that's the response to your Tony Robbins thing. Is that that's yeah. a person who didn't have too much or didn't wasn't giving. You know, uh, I didn't have the exact quote, and I I don't know that one. But yeah. but but that that's not necessarily always the case. There's all these stories of these people who live in studio gave apartments more, right. gave way more than they yeah they, way beyond their until it hurt and more. You know, yeah. they had to actually sacrifice something in order to do it. Exactly that's, right. Well, I could talk to you all day. But I think for, for our purposes, um, this is as good a place to stop as any. But you know, thanks a lot for, for hanging out. I, I, I love hearing about entrepreneurship and, and just the idea behind walking away from something. I mean, in the last, during COVID, I'm sure you heard from more than, more than a few people who had, to, who had that moment to reevaluate what, um, what they were doing with their lives. Um, did, did more people come around to the reality that, you know, something wasn't bringing them joy and it was time to move on. Did you have the chance to, to give more of your insight to people at that time? Well, you know, I, I know this is a terrible thing to say, and I probably get whacked for saying this, but the COVID years turned out to me, for me, to be among the most special years of our, of my life. And I recognize, I say that the reason I get slapped for this is that I recognize that many, 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 many people, families, households suffered horribly uh, with sickness, with death, with economic tribulations during the COVID era. And so I don't take that lightly. But for me, it was among the sweetest period of time. My daughter and son-in-law, um, for reasons I won't go into here, but they ended up living with us. And my daughter got pregnant and our grandson was born and we have other grandchildren too, but, but this one was born and living with us. And I got a chance to sort of be a a, sort of a caregiver again in a very intimate way. And, but also prior to that, and this won't surprise you or your listeners is that, you know, prior to that for 40 something years, I was living on an airplane and for two and a half years, I didn't fly anywhere. And it gave me a chance to get back in touch with myself and to study a subject that required great concentration that I'd long wanted to master. I got myself a tutor, an online tutor, and studied many hours a week with this tutor and, um, and did develop mastery in the area. And I had the opportunity to start new businesses and to write that quote and to put together that quotations book. But also, to go to your point of your question, to renew and refresh relationships in a way that I couldn't or didn't previously because everything was so on the fly that COVID gave us a little more breathing room 
for those who could still breathe, <laughs> gave us more breathing room, <laughs> yeah. you know, and gave us the chance to renew relationships and talk to people, not just staccato bursts of a few moments, but really extended conversations. So, so there was a lot. There was a lot about a lot about the COVID era that I found helpful, and but likewise, as I said earlier, I like mentoring people. There's a lot of young people who suffered terribly during COVID because their romantic lives were thrown off track, or they, <clears throat> or they their careers were thrown off track. And, um, and I really, you know, tried my best to help them think through what was obviously a very, very difficult era um, with some greater and lesser success. Well, thank you so much for spending some time here. Um, I, if, if people want to get in touch with you, learn more about your writing, your books, your thinking on different subjects, some of the businesses that you're creating that are people can, can learn about and where can people find you? Well, um, I, uh, my, uh, my, uh, one of my three children, uh, helped me to create a website so that everyone could have my books all in one place. So it's www.sethsethmlikemarysiegel.com. So www.sethmsiegel.com is a good starting point. And, um, anybody, and you can email me through that website and I, I'm proud of the fact that I respond to all emails within 24 hours. So um, you can email me and if you want to initiate a conversation, anyone wants to initiate a conversation or, or learn more about some of the areas that I've written books about or my professional areas of interest, um, um, I, I'd be very happy to do that. Um, I would also, can I share with everybody, Scott, that, that you've been a, uh, you've been a mentor to me, I guess, in a strange way is that with my <laughs> books, you, you've read drafts of, of chapters and, and have been exceptionally, as everyone knows who knows you, you're unbelievably smart and you're deeply read and you're a hell of a great real estate broker too. And, uh, and you. you were helpful to me in, in those books. So you'll, everyone who loves Scott Harris, as I do, uh, will have a chance to uh, have a little bit of Scott Harris DNA in, in some of the chapters of, of some of my books as well. Yeah, we, we, so, we're going to have to save some of the, the, the discussion of water tech and, and the, the state of the water in in Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan, or wherever for another conversation. But um, for those, yeah, there's the, the books on water, um, Let There Be Water and, and Trouble Water is just, an un, those are unbelievable reads. And, and I've thoroughly enjoyed both reading drafts and, and also seeing the finished product. So reading the finished product, I guess I should sure. say. So, well, well thanks for Scott, hanging thanks out. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And ho hopefully we can hang it over a cup of, uh, well, I don't drink coffee, but a cup of something soon. Okay. Do talk, yep. talk, talk to you soon. And thanks for inviting me. You bet. Bye. That was my conversation with Yossi Siegel. Many thanks to Yossi for taking some time out of his busy speaking schedule to hang out and talk about what it means to be a mentor, to be a leader, to be someone who contributes back to the world. Um, and if you like what you hear, please push that subscribe button so you can hear us every week. We put out conversations with other CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, incredible people who are making the world better brick by brick. Home is about much more than brick and mortar and we're here to tell you all about it. All the music you hear is written by me and Finding Home is produced by Andrea Pollyutz. Thanks, Andrea, for making this sound good. See you next time.